0: The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up to date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real world practice. Today is my privilege to welcome Lisa Schock, where we talk about contracts and negotiations. Dr. Schock is a PA who also has a doctorate in public health policy from UNC. Lisa is involved in quite a bit of administrative and clinical roles in leadership, and I was hoping you could give us some background. Uh, Just tell us about yourself and how you became a PA.
1: Sure. Thanks, and thanks for the opportunity to participate here today. I was actually a a clinical researcher before I was a PA. I started in biochemistry and then kind of migrated over to pediatric rheumatology and immunology at UNC and then was fortunate to attend Duke for my PA training and have spent the greater part of the last couple decades in rural primary care in North Carolina. And even though I have a day job that is highly administrative. I still do clinically practice in my little town that I fell in love with as a PA student. To keep my other clinical knives sharp, I take as needed shifts in uh, urgent care. By day, I am a healthcare leader and administrator. I am currently in a role with a global company where I am rolling out digital primary care with a digital front door first, working to improve access to care.
0: For our listeners, as you probably have already learned, Lisa is a PA but doesn't do orthopedics. But I wanted to have her because of her wealth of experience. Lisa, I found out about you through Laura Gerstner. Laura is going to be on an upcoming podcast for students and uh, new PAs, etc. But I asked her about contracts and she says, oh, you need to talk to Lisa Shock. And I said, "Okay, well, let's do that. So you have looked over a contract or two in your time. I understand that you do a gratis review of Campbell contracts for their PA students. And just hoping you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Laura was very kind a few years ago to ask me to give the contracts and negotiation lectures to the Campbell students as they transition from their first year to their second year and then kind of come back again as they get ready to go out into the world. And it's definitely one of my favorite things. I really um, push them to do good negotiations. And I quote some articles in the Harvard Business Review around gender differences in, in contract negotiation and really push folks to really think about those things and not be bashful. You know, I I made the classic mistake, you know, I was a fresh you know fresh freshly graduated from duke and really 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 wanted to work in in the town that i fell in love with and just took the first offer that i was offered and it was stupid <laughs> you know like i should have <laughs> never done that you know and and i tell uh-huh. i tell them that all the time and and you know you don't realize when you're kind of young and getting out of school that that first salary commitment that you make kind of sets you up for the rest of your days in the sense that if you're underpaid, when you start, you've got more catch up to do. Right. So, so I I really push them to not just negotiate, but I I kind of liken contract negotiation to kind of dating and marriage, right? Like in the beginning, you're starry-eyed and you're super excited, and then you you know kind of make your acceptance and commitment, and you <laughs> and you kind of marry together. And then hopefully you don't divorce in part ways, but you know, there's consequences when that happens. And if there's contractual language in there, sometimes that can bite you. So we kind of go through that, that continuum. And then it's always fun. Tell them, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I can play one on TV, but you know, I'm happy to give you advice on on a contract if you're first one getting out. Mm-hmm. So so I can always tell when the Campbell kids are getting out and getting ready to go into the world because I'll get a little wave of stuff uh-huh. in my inbox. And then a couple months later, I'll get another wave, you know. But it's been really fun over the years, and I would like to think that it's been helpful. Um, I think that it's it's helped them kind of be – informed, you know, to make an informed decision and and try to really help them understand, you know, kind of the consequences of this or that. And it's not all about money, right? Like I, I, my, my Duke mentor used to call it, you know, kind of nibbles, you know, so sometimes it's about a dollar amount that you need a certain X dollars to make your expenses and your loan payments and everything else. But sometimes it's about flexibility and being able to pick your kid up from school or have a half a day a week to charge. Or catch up on things, or just call patients back, and and you know do that really comprehensive primary care that you want to do. So you know, we, I always talk about those things too, kind of the softer things around schedule and 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 flexibility to a certain degree.
0: Mm-hmm. A little bit different orthopedic surgery. I mean, think about how many hours you want to work. Do you want to take a call? Do you want to work weekends? You know, there there are a lot of things to think about other than just the dollar signs, although those are important. If we are talking about contract negotiations with new PAs, I have a two-part question. So what would be your top four or five things that you would say that new candidates need to do to make themselves stand out from the rest of the crowd? And along those lines, are there any negotiating points that you just say, okay, well, I've got to accept those, or you try to negotiate no matter what if you really want to get this job.
1: I had a new grad recently who had a lot of experience before PA school doing diabetes education, for example, and she was getting ready to go into a job where that skill and experience that she had before really did matter, right? So that's a good example of just because I wasn't a PA when I did this, I'm still a certified diabetic educator and I'm still bringing that to you, right? Like as, as experience, as a candidate. So it shouldn't be discounted, right? Like just because I'm a new grad PA doesn't mean you have to pay me the bottom of the barrel dollar amount, right? Like I am actually bringing more experience and more skill to the table here. So, so that's one example is not... Just because you weren't a PA in your last life doesn't mean that some of those skills don't transfer in. So I think depending on what type of job you're going for, and I actually see this in ortho sometimes, right? Like somebody will have been a PT assistant or something, right? And then they're going into an outpatient ortho job That's, you know, in a, in a practice that has PT, why wouldn't you want to hire a great PA who has PT background, who's going to feed people into your PT clinic? That's a no brainer from a revenue perspective, (laughs) pointing stuff out like that, I think is really important. And then as far as negotiating, you know, I always tell people the most important thing about your first job. And I really do believe this is that you should never feel as a PA that you are bothering your doc with a question. You should have a a collaborative relationship with your physician colleagues so that as you're going to have questions as a new grad.
0: Now, hold on, wait a second. You you've worked with surgeons, yes. <laughs> yes, I've worked with plenty
1: of surgeons. Okay. I mean, they don't care if you have a question that they feel is legitimate. Uh-huh. There should be enough of a relationship there and enough of a respect factor, right, that you're you're not bashful to ask a question cuz that's going to result in patient harm. Or you know, you should feel supported enough in your environment.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: So sometimes I'll tell someone, you know, this might not be your forever job. You may not stay here forever, but you're going to get really good experience here. And this working with this physician or this team or in this department might give you some really solid experience. And once you prove your worth, you can negotiate harder to get paid more or, you know, get a bigger bonus or whatever that looks like. But you could also use that experience to get the next great job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I agree with all that. Uh just with your surgeons keep your question under 10 seconds and you'll be yeah, fine. Uh, exactly. You know, there's not a lot of attention <laughs> span there. Exactly. Kind of going along that, uh you're negotiating your contract, right? You're in the office with the CEO, the doc, whoever and what's the best way to ask for what you want? You know, say I really think I'm worth more than this. How do you get you know, how do you present your side? What's the best way to do it without standing, coming across arrogant or, you know, even worse, sounding meek? At, how do you get that going?
1: I know that physicians love data, right? PAs do too. And I also know that a lot of times practice administrators or practice managers, while they mean well, do not always completely understand what PA scope or practice always looks like, right? And bad myths are perpetuated. So I often find it helpful if there's a policy that doesn't make sense, like PAs can't see Medicaid patients. Well, that's not true, <laughs> right? Or or PA should only make you know sixty thousand dollars coming out of school in their first job. Well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. That kind of arming yourself with credible evidence is often helpful. So I encourage, you know, some of the new grads, if it's a specialty that I'm not super familiar with, what the starting rate might be, you know, I'll say, hey, go on AAPA to get that salary report. General salary report isn't specific enough for what we're going to ask for here, you know. Mm -hmm. And if we get you paid $10,000 more, you won't complain.
0: For everyone that's listening that's doing orthopedics, the PAOS puts out the annual practice and salary survey. Right. And you can break that down by nationally, regionally, or by state. And I think that's a much better, even though it's self-reported data, I think that's much better at a negotiating tool than some of the MGMA or, you know, uh, you don't want to be compared to everybody. You want to be compared to what you're doing. right? So I think the AAPA is a good way to start. MGMA our practice folks use that and I you know carry in our practice and salary survey the little bit you pay for memberships well worth uh that product and we mm-hmm. do it once a year so anyways a little plug there for PAOS.
1: So I think especially around salary and reimbursement you know evidence makes the day right like it just makes the difference and you can really show and, and I will also caveat that by saying big associations like the Medical Group Management Association, my experience with them is they are historically on the lower side of the scale. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it gets back to bad data and PAs being embedded under physician and PIs. I I think they don't have good numbers to really kind of show what PAs are doing. Mm -hmm. I was talking with a colleague in dermatology, and I happen to know, she wouldn't know that I knew this, but I happen to know some about her practice's finances, and they are very well paid <laughs> as PAs in that, in that practice mm-hmm. group. And, and you know, clearly the, the physicians that own that practice are cognizant of the revenue and the value that the PAs are bringing to their overall business. So I encourage people to begin those conversations with really credible evidence and and do your homework before you go in.
0: What about, you know, we talked about kind of leaning toward new grads, the COVID environment and the job market being not as great as it was, say, a year ago. What about someone who is like in your first job wanting to switch and go to a different specialty or someone who got furloughed or laid off and they're you know looking for a job? What advice would you tell them in this market where the numbers are not great? It's an employer's market. What would you tell them?
1: And I have to be honest with you, Sam, it's been really, I was really sad and disappointed about the number of PAs that I was seeing on the huddle and in the, some of the other forums and online boards that I follow about how many people were getting cut, right, with COVID, right? Like the the default was, oh, let's just cut the PAs, so I have had a few colleagues you know reach out to me with exactly those questions and I think I have a kind of a few sub sayings and one of them is it's always better to be wanted than wanting right mm-hmm. so it's when you're looking for a job and you're not finding something quickly and it feels like it takes forever it's
0: a slog
1: you know and and having been on the other side you know hiring nationally for lots of different roles not pa clinical but other things you know it's 3 seconds that a, that a recruiter looks at your stuff so my advice to my colleagues is always get out there and get out there broadly and deeply as best you can and just know that you know to get past To get past the HR robot can be challenging. And the good thing that you have going is you have experience, you know, highlight your experience, highlight for my Duke colleagues. I'm like, you went to the top program in the country, put that out there, Mm -hmm. get out there and be proud of that. And, and, you know, underline that, write the cover letter. You know, that's the other thing. A lot of these online things will say cover letter optional, but I have found even in my own journey, you know, trying to get an urgent care hustle after I finished my doctorate, Mm -hmm. I needed to underline to the recruiter why they should pull my CV out of the pile. So in that cover letter, you know, bulleting out, you know, really simply, I have X experience in this specialty, you're hiring for that, right? Like mirroring that language back so that again, when either the robot is reading it or the human is reading it, you know, they're like, oh, that's a match. Let's move them to the next level. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, do not underestimate the value of connections, right? Like most jobs are gotten because you know somebody or heard of somebody working somewhere. You know, LinkedIn, you know, work that network. You know, if there's a hospital system you want to work in, get in there. Figure out who in your network is working there. Send those folks a little note and say, hey, I've applied, you know, Typically my my style is get your application in with HR and then start working your contact list mm-hmm. so that if you get a bite on your connection side you can say well i've already applied can you put in a good word for me and then that might help you advance.
0: Right. Okay. Good stuff, Lisa. Thank you so much. Before we wrap it up is there anything that you could recommend any resources, articles or anything that I forgot to ask you that uh, we should add for those folks that are you know, looking to negotiate contracts, looking for a position?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely connect to me on LinkedIn. There are a few HR influencers and talent folks that I follow there and and who are fun to read their articles and, you know, just kind of learn a little bit more about you know, negotiation and the job market and the trends. Telemedicine, I think, is here to stay in a, in a bigger way, um, thanks to COVID. So I think that targeting and maybe even being multi-licensed, if you want to do telehealth, getting licensed in more than one state is probably a good idea and worth the money to do that because it broadens your ability to work for some of the virtual companies who might be having presence in five or six states instead of just one.
0: Well, that's, that's great. And thank you so much for everything, Lisa, for coming on today and helping us understand more about contract negotiations and how to make yourself an outstanding candidate for that new job.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Join us next week when we have a discussion regarding pain psychiatry with Dr. Marks.
1: As you know, it's a pretty frequent condition. It's probably something like 20% of people worldwide, maybe 20% of, of visits to clinicians relate to some type of chronic pain
0: condition. An adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Family Medicine at Duke University Medical Center. Dr. Marks is a psychiatrist and specializes in pain management. In orthopedics, obviously, there is a lot of people that have pain. Please subscribe to our podcast, If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.